All right, let's get into, uh, in our series, Rediscovering and, Rest- and Restoring Biblical Christianity, uh, emphasis 11 is effective prayer with fasting. Now, we are actually on emphasis five, you might remember, which has to do with restoring the whole counsel of the word of God. And we probably have another 30 to 50 messages on that subject to go. But because of what it seems like the Lord's doing in our midst, I jumped ahead to uh, emphasis 11 for a while. So emphasis 11a, I want to look at what Jesus says about teaching, or about, about what he teaches about prayer, what, what he did about prayer, what his lifestyle of prayer was, and what the results were. Now, I want to just, by way of review, remind us, Jesus is the most qualified commentator on prayer in the universe. And there are two primarily scriptural reasons for that. One is who he is. That is the person of Christ. Christ is the only man who's ever lived on this planet that was 100% man in the same way that the approximately 16, well, let me do the math, approximately 16 billion humans that have lived, uh, he's he's a human being exactly the same way we are. uh, However, there's a couple differences. One, he's also 100% God, and therefore he eternally existed. Uh, You can't understand this uh, totally, but he's the eternally begotten son of God. So he was, it's like if John Gray uh, said, we asked him, you know, when was Daniel born? And and if he said he's the eternally begotten son of John, like (laughs) there was never a time when Daniel was not. Uh, you might uh, re- remember that uh, some years ago I started in on a little ch- church history series and uh, different people gave some presentations at a certain point. So uh, Catherine decided to, to uh, break the rules. You're supposed to do it on a, a list of famous uh, early church people that I had provided, like 30 or so famous of what they call the Apostolic Fathers. Uh, that is the, the 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 great church leaders from the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth century, and she did it on a cult leader named Arius. And uh, the 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 disciples of Arius, am I saying it right? Arius, Arius, uh, the, they used to uh, go run around the streets chanting, "There was a time when the sun was not." <laughs> that was their slogan. In other words, what they're saying is, contrary to what the Bible and the church teach, is Jesus is not eternal. But Jesus didn't just become the eternally begotten Son of God a long, long, long time ago. He always was, always is, and always will be. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity are three persons in one being that are co-equal, co-existent, yet they have hierarchical order. 
they ha- they have no beginning. They they always have been, always are, and always will be. And yet they're one being, even though they're three persons. That's called the mystery of the Trinity, the first and most important doctrine of Christianity. So Jesus was was that, even though he also became fully a human being. Now there's another way in which he was not like us, and the only other human beings who ever had this were our our progenitor parents, Adam and Eve. Because Jesus did not have a sin nature. And therefore, Jesus was tempted, temptable, and his temptations were real, but he wasn't subject to the power of sin. And he never yielded to sin. He was, is, and always will be sinless. Even though it was theoretically possible for him to be to sin, and his temptations were real. Now, a, a great key, I say all that to say this. Uh, Hebrews gives us a picture of Jesus crying out to God with godly fear. Jesus, part of the way he remained sin, sinless was his prayer life empowered him to do that. And therefore, I would love to hear, uh, if I ever did my whole series on prayer again, it's really good stuff. And if Nathan chose to teach on 930 on prayer, I'm sure I would love to be there and, and hear it. But if Jesus teaches on prayer, that's a whole different league that I can't even explain why that's so much better and more important. I'm not capable of making that of saying that well enough to do it justice. So uh, the first reason Jesus is the the expert on prayer is because of who he is. And, and uh, that includes his relationship with the Father and with the Spirit. And his relationship with the Father by the Spirit. Secondly, is the example of his life. We, in this church, I hope you know by now that the idea of patterns or models is a major, major thing. One of the things that, uh, that breaks my heart is that when Christians today want to get more serious, you're challenged to take the Bible more seriously and read the Bible more. But that's not good enough. That would be a little bit like if I said, do a better job at your job. You might want to say, in what way should I do a better job at my job, and how could I do it? And let's step back and evaluate ways in which my performance at my job isn't perfect, and, and what, could, what could I do to improve? You know, uh, Socrates, uh, whose disciple was Plato and, and Aristotle, and he was made famous by Bill and Ted in their excellent adventure. Uh, before that, he was called Socrates. But uh, Socrates uh, was very famous for saying, the unexamined life is not worth living. In other words, if you don't step back from things like your finances and learn about finances, 
if you don't step back from like read the Bible and learn about how to read the Bible and why to read the Bible and, and, and how to interpret the Bible and how to use the Bible, then just saying read the Bible more isn't enough. So one of my pet peeves in if the American Christianity is if, if people want to get you more serious about the Lord, they'll say, oh, read the Bible more. But that's not good enough. You know, I remember when I played Little League Baseball before I became a very successful little kids baseball coach uh, back in, what, the 90s. Um, I remember the coaches would say, you got a piece of the, when you're swinging and you tip the fouled one off or whatever, they go, you got a piece of it, now get the whole thing. Or, you know, um, let's straighten that out. And I remember thinking to myself, yeah, but how? You know, I'm sure that when Robbie was a famous high school football player for the great Stebbins High School, uh, they didn't just say, do a better job of blocking. Because if they did, hopefully he'd speak up and go, I'm trying, but how do I do a better job of blocking? Teach me some techniques. You know, like rushing the passer has techniques to it and so forth. And the type of approach a defensive lineman takes on a play that he thinks is going to be a pass is a different approach than he takes on a play that he thinks is going to be a run. So examining things is quite important. So with Christ, uh, not only is it a matter of who he is, but it's a matter of what he modeled. In John 13, when he, disciple, when he washes the disciples' feet, he tell, says, you call me in to- Lord and teacher, and, you, and you're right. And I did this as an example for you. So what he's doing is, I'm modeling for you and it's very important that you understand that in the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three synoptic gospels, S-Y-N or S-Y-M at the beginning of a word, it comes from a Greek prefix that means the same, like symphony, symphony, phonics is the word for sound. Uh, a symphony is a, a bunch of different musical instruments that hopefully all sound well together. And it usually does if it was Baroque or classical or neoclassical or romantic music. But if it's modern stuff, no, no, no I'm just kidding. But uh, so the synoptic gospels see Jesus in a similar way. John has already read Matthew, Mark, and Luke when he writes his. So in John 13, 14, 15, and 16, John's version of the Last Supper he gives us information about what happened at the Last Supper that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't give us. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all concentrate on Jesus telling Peter that he would deny him three times. And I believe Luke's version also tells Peter that he'll be restored when you've turned again, strengthen your brethren. He tells them that Judas will betray him. And he institutes the, the, the covenant celebration. All covenants in the Bible have ceremonies of enactment and ceremonies of renewal, 
and the Lord's Supper, also known as Eucharist or, or our communion meal, are a ceremony of renewal of the new covenant. They're renewing what happened at water baptism. John doesn't give us any of that. John gives us that I'm about to go with the, to be with the Father, but don't worry. Can you imagine if you'd, if you'd traveled with Jesus for three and a half years and saw all the things the Bible says to do, and he says, I'm leaving? Don't, don't you think you'd be a little worried? Especially if he said, I'm leaving. By the way, continue the mission exactly as I've been doing it from here. Would that concern you a little bit? Yow. <laughs> uh, you know, remember that Peter in Luke 5, when, when, the, when they uh, catch so many fish that, the boat, that they have to call the other boats and stuff, and then Peter jumps out of the boat and swims over to the shore and, and bows at Jesus' feet and says, uh, you know, depart from me, I, you, I'm a sinful man. You know, he's basically, when you, when you experience God's glory and holiness, you should have a reaction that includes, I think you got the wrong guy when you chose me. <laughs> if you get his holiness at all and have any insight into who we are, that's got to be your reaction. Like, Lord, you, you picked the wrong guy. I know that you're omniscient and you're, and you're eternal and you see all things before, from you know, the end from the beginning and all this, but I think you made a mistake in this case to choose Sam or whatever or Greg. And you should especially have that feeling toward yourself. Right? Anybody been through that? I, hope, I think you have, right? And so... Um, I think you'd go through the exact same thing if you're at the Last Supper and Jesus starts to tell you, I'm going home, I'm going to go back to the Father and you're going to keep the mission going the exact same way I've been doing it. You'd have the same response, right? Like, ooh, Jesus, that... You know, like, I, I do love how, especially Simon Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him from time to time. <laughs> I sometimes, get, I get that sometimes. Sometimes I get that from people who know enough about the Lord and know me well enough and so forth that I do, I'm, it's uh, incumbent upon me and, and wise to listen. Sometimes I get that, especially from people that are begin, just beginners or whatever and so forth, and they're way out in left field. <laughs> and it's like, that's nice, but, but you know... Uh, you know, when, when we're like, Lord, I think you got, the wrong, got it wrong here, we probably need to go back to point number one, <laughs> who the Lord is. All right, so um, hopefully we're getting all this. So Jesus starts John 13 by saying, I'm the model. I wash your feet because of this. I'm about to give you, Adam Furlow, and... Uh, John Gray, when I baptize you in the Holy Spirit, I'm giving you the most terrible, awesome power in the universe. I'm giving you someone to live inside you that is more powerful than all nuclear and atom bombs put together. 
I'm giving you a person to live inside you who spoke and said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, I've turned on light switches, so I can jokingly say, let there be light, flip a switch, and it sometimes works. <laughs> Not if I wear it. But... Uh, <laughs> um, So Jesus, uh, Luke 5, Jesus would often go to the wilderness to pray. Hopefully you understand the correlation between that and later in verse 26 when it says they were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear and they said, we've seen remarkable things today. In Luke 6, it says that he went off in the mountain to pray and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Uh, that there's actually a term for that. It's called a watch. And if you, especially in Isaiah, he, he uses that term of being a watchman, which means to pray all night. And uh, occasionally people like Josiah in our church organize all night prayer meetings. And it's actually a good thing to do especially if you're under 60. But uh, when Jesus spent all night praying to God, there were a couple results I want you to notice. One is he did that before he named the 12. Jesus didn't just go around uh, what today is called Israel and the northern part was Galilee, and to the northeast is Decapolis, and the southern part is Judea, and just south of that is Idiomia. And, and Jesus travels through all these places and even goes through the central part that the Jews normally went around and avoided called Samaria. That's why he talked to the Samaritan woman at the well. Normally the Jews hated the Samaritans so much that they would go east from Galilee across the Decapolis, that is the Ten Cities region where the, where the gathering demoniac was encountered and so forth, cross the Jordan River, go south on the east side of the Jordan River, cross back over it so that they could go, uh, when they were in the southern part of Israel, and cross back over it to go to Jerusalem so they could avoid Samaria. That's how much they hated the Samaritans. It was like they weren't going to go in that neighborhood. But so a couple of things you should notice that happened with Jesus after he prayed all night is he chose the 12. Now, I find that amazing because in John chapter 6, verse 70 and 71, if you notice, uh, I'm at the second scripture reading there, Luke 6, 12 through 19, down at the bottom where it says, read John 6, 7, uh, or John 6, 70 and 71. John 6, 70 and 71 uh, says this. Did I not choose you? Yet one of you is a devil. And the Greek word for devil there is the word diabolos, uh, not the word diamonic. It's not, he's not just saying a demon. So this is, this is a very important thing you need to understand. Did Jesus get it wrong when he chose Jesus, Judas? No. God the Father, by the Spirit, showed him to choose Judas. And the scripture foresaw in the Psalms that he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. 
God foreordained eternally that Jesus, one of his 12, would be the betrayer. Now, why is that important for, in this teaching? That I'm 30 minutes behind and I'm still bringing this point up. Because you need to understand, God's appointed people in your life that are going to leave you. You're going to love on them. You're going to care about them. You're going to pour your heart to them. They're going to owe you their very uh, walk with God, and they're going to walk away from you for less than good reasons. Because they took an offense and, didn't just, and chose not to deal with it in a biblical way. Happens all the time. And if you're going to be used of God, it's going to happen to you a number of times. And sometimes it's going to be among the most painful experiences you'll ever experience in life. And it's going to make it hard to keep doing evangelism and discipleship and, and caring for people. Sometimes your kids grow up to be wonderful kids. Sometimes they don't. And sometimes it can't be traced to uh, bad parenting or good parenting. Sometimes it's just traceable to the purpose of God. And sometimes the people you love on and love the most and give the most to are going to betray you. And God loves you so much that he's going to guarantee that happens to you. It's not a possibility. It's a definite. Paul tells us in Colossians that he does uh, what it takes to fill up the, measure, the full measure of Christ's sufferings. Now, wait a minute. Is, is there something lacking in Christ's sufferings? Paul says that he's doing what it takes to fill up that which is lacking in Christ's sufferings. Does anybody think there's, that there was something in Christ's sufferings that, was, that wasn't complete? You know, read, read a medical doctor's view of what Jesus suffered on the cross. If you've never done, read a book on that, now it'll be a painful, it's, you'll be in tears, uh, it's best to read it when you're in a time like where you just broke your leg or, you know, don't go out and break your leg. But uh, not intentionally anyway. Uh, but uh, no, uh, I remember the last, I, I, one time my back went out so bad, John Gray remembers this because I, used, I had to have John Gray and, and another guy help me get from the upstairs to the downstairs of my house and get in my uh, recliner chair. And I had to set up a line of chairs from the recliner to the bathroom so that as I went to the bathroom, I could lean from one chair to another because I couldn't stand up nearly straight for six weeks. And I was in the most excruciating pain. And that word actually comes from the same Latin word as crucifix. And there, you know, there's, there's some kinds of pain that are really, 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 really intense. So many, many of us have experienced that. And any lady that's given birth has experienced that. <laughs> um, I, and so I'm told. Ah, thank the Lord that I haven't experienced that. But I've watched that experience. And uh, last time that happened to me, I decided to read a book by a doctor on what Jesus went through 
at from Gethsemane all the way through to the resurrection. Uh, with you know, using medical terminology that in many cases was above my head. If you've never done that, it's a very edifying experience, but it's a terrible experience. But guess what? Who likes to worship? You like to sing songs of praise and worship. You know why you love to worship? Because the spirit of God in you, deep calls to deep. God, When God calls you to himself, even before you're baptized in the spirit, when you're born again, the spirit of God that dwells in you wants to give glory and worship to God. When they read Psalm 70 today, they read the ESV, which says God is great, which really... ESV is normally a great translation. That In verse 5 of Psalm 70, it really stinks. But uh, because it, it, the, the New King James, the King James, the NASB, they all say, let God be magnified. And what magnification is this. Magnification doesn't change the shape of anything. But my glasses magnify things. And because I've seen this room, I could probably still get almost everyone in the room correct <laughs> with my glasses off. But if I hadn't been looking at you for half an hour, I probably couldn't. Because, <laughs> you know, glasses uh, can, don't change the shape of anything, but they help your ability to perceive it correctly. Right? And so when we say, let's magnify the Lord, actually, God... Uh, wants to be worshipped, he deserves to be worshipped, but we need to worship God. Because our, our worshipping God is like a trip to the optometrist and to get the right new glasses put on every week. Because we are so blind we can't see him. Our sin has has deprived us of that. And so when we get filled with the Spirit, when we're enjoying the worship and, we're, and it's so wonderful and it's so good, and it, we're getting a vision correction. And we're seeing God from who, for who he is. So Jesus spends the whole night in prayer to God and then he does two things. He chooses the 12 correctly and that includes choosing one that would betray him. And the reason we need to fill up all the measure of Christ's sufferings, when you, you know, again, when you're worshiping the Lord, oh Lord, I just love you. I just, I wanna be with you and I wanna know you so much. You can't know the Lord if you don't know his sufferings. That's why this whole prosperity Western gospel that, you know, it builds huge churches with big money. If you teach on suffering and, and all those kind of things, you'll have a small church with not so much money. <laughs> I know. <laughs> We actually had to borrow money from uh, church savings accounts to do payroll this past week. Because, uh, you know, uh, people don't like to stay if what you're going to do is take them to the cross. But guess what? You need to go to the cross. You, you have to. 
the greatest privilege of life is to fellowship Christ in every way, including his sufferings. And those sufferings include that some of the dearest, sweetest, most wonderful people that you've given to and sacrificed for and so forth will betray you. And that's one of the one of the greatest blessings in life there is. You know, I was ministering to someone this week who's uh, some Christians in their life aren't too happy with the direction they're going, but they're in God's will. And guess what? Part of God's will is that some people aren't going to like what you're doing, even when you're in the midst of God's will. All right, let's keep going. I'm way off. I'm on a bunch of different subjects today. But this is really good stuff if you're getting it. Next point, Roman number two, was persistence through death of a vision. So I just want to emphasize a couple. There's a, a man uh, named Lord Lauren Cunningham. Does anybody know who Lauren Cunningham is? He's still alive, I believe. He is the founder of an organization called Youth with a Mission. And... Uh, in 1974, this impacted me so much, I still remember the time of day and where I was sitting when I read this article by him called Death of a Vision. Uh, 1974 at my parents' kitchen table in the middle of the night, as I often read at 2 or 3 in the morning. And uh, the truth is, every vision God gives you, he, he'll also take you through a process where that vision dies where it looks hopeless, where it looks like you had the wrong vision in the first place. And I can remember that I had a great desire for God to move on, on Bowling Green State University campus. And I remember in the summer of 1974, standing in a particular place, uh, what, uh, watching all the co- where the seal of the campus is, and I would it, it's it's raised up uh, oh wait, fourteen or fifteen inches, and I would step up on this metal plate so I could see the the all the college students go by better. And I've always been a little nutty, as you all know, uh, and I would just I would actually weep. And I'd say, God, these people are chasing their classes, their careers, their girlfriends. None of it matters. All that matters is what they're going to do with you or not do with you. That's the only thing that actually matters. And they can't see it and they don't know it. And God was beginning to birth in me a great desire to, to see him move on college campuses. Today, right near that spot, there's a tree planted in one of the most ungodly people I've ever known's name, my, my oldest brother. And every year I would pray, Lord, is it this spring you're going to move on campus? And I would study the scriptures at least three hours every day and try to prepare myself for this. And I was part of a Christian community and so forth. And I was being discipled and I was growing in the Lord. And every year I just had this sense, not yet, you're not ready. 
And so four years later, my senior year came, and I said, Lord, this is it. This is my last year on campus. If you don't move this year, and the Lord was very clear, not yet, you're not ready. And then I graduated, and I got a job working in a factory. And I worked first as a production worker for like six months, then as a quality control inspector. And then the Lord one day led me to go back to campus and get a master's degree. And I had totally forgotten about my burden to see God move on campus. It had died so dead, it wasn't even on my radar anymore. And one day, uh, one of the pastors who was, that some of you know, named Peter Manto, who's Michelle Caldwell's pastor, uh, said, we'd like you to come in. The elders want to talk to you. And I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> you know, what have I done wrong? And I couldn't believe it because, you know, I was in, in grad school and I was studying 60 hours a week and studying on my knees at night so I wouldn't fall asleep because I had to get straight A's and all that kind of stuff. You know, you've been there, some of you. And... uh Remember the pastor looked at me and said, you know, uh, ten, nine years ago, we were a campus ministry. Now we have over 100 little kids. We have all, you know, we have all these weddings every year. We're, now we're all in our late 20s, our early 30s. We're, we don't have any college students anymore. And our church is right in the middle of a, in a, of a university town. We're looking for somebody who has a burden to see God move on the campus. And what we're doing here today was born out of that meeting. Death of a vision is a thing that you will go through about whatever God's, you know, you'll, if you have a burden for evangelism, you'll come to a place where you don't want to do evangelism anymore. You're tired of it, you're sick of it, and you can't stand how many people have betrayed you and walked away. And Does everyone hear what I'm saying? Like you'll, you'll join a church like Grace Christian Fellowship because you have this desire to see uh, God restore the church and move in the world and so forth, and, and, it, and it'll become so disappointing that, you, that you'll be an amazing Christian if you stay. And that's why a lot of people don't stay. They're always on to the next thing. Yeah, that one kind of slowed down. Let's go on to something that's more promising. Death of a vision is a very real thing. And what Jesus is telling us in Luke chapter 11 and Luke chapter 18 is don't stop praying even when the vision's dead. Even when you could care less, like you used to have a passion for lost people to be saved, now you could care less. Someone calls you up at, you know, 10 at night and says, oh man, we just led this person to Christ and they, they got the demons delivered and they were filled with the spirit and they were so excited about God. And you're like, you know, that's nice. I was about to eat my dinner. Can you call back tomorrow? <laughs> you know, you don't care anymore.
Luke 18, look at the, uh, I, you don't have these things circled like I do. I have the phrase circled at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. You know, he's telling you, don't lose heart. Guess what? Why does it tell don't lose heart? The reason it says thou shall not kill is because people kill. The reason it says thou shall not commit adultery is because people commit adultery. The reason it says thou shall not steal is because the Democratic Party, you know, they call the Republicans the grand, grand old party. People have been wanting to steal your money through taxes since before uh, Babylon. You know, we, have a, we actually have a morality in our humanistic lost culture that says if something's legal, then it must be moral. Taxation is theft. Even if it's done by people with suits on. I got a tie and everything, so give me your money. Well, um, persistence in long-suffering. You know, the King James uses the word long-suffering, and most modern translations don't use that. They use more like, uh, words like endurance. I really like the word long-suffering. You know why? Adam Furlow, don't miss this. It's because the suffering is long. <laughs> it's never quick. I could call out quite a few names because you know what? You're going to fill up the measure of Christ's sufferings. What does God have in mind for you? Pain. <laughs> Did you ever see the Rocky movies? There was that guy, Clubber Lang, and I think Rocky too. They, they said, what's your prediction for the fight? Pain. <laughs> that, oh, that, that's the definition of marriage. No. That's the definition of raising children. That's what happens at your job. That's what happens in single households. That's the definition of grace, Christian fellowship. <laughs> I came forward at the altar call and received pain into my heart. <laughs> this is my Lord and Savior. <laughs> well, that's how you know you've really been saved. The, you know, everyone thinks the evidence of the baptism and the Spirit is speaking in tongues. The, the, you know, the evidence of being baptized in the Spirit, actually, read a little more carefully, you know, our four chapters on the Holy Spirit. Read a little bit more carefully the five examples we use and look for this, but you'll see this. The evidence of getting baptized in the Spirit is trouble. Is the heat's turned up. Is you're going to be misunderstood when you have... When, you're, when your motives are 10 times more pure than they used to be, your motives will be 10 times more sus, uh, suspected and questioned. And you'll, you'll, when you don't deserve to be accused as much as you used to deserve to be accused, you'll be more accused. Does everybody hear what I'm saying?
And this is why Jesus taught us to pray and not lose heart. You know why? Because I need to pray not to lose heart. I hope you'll pray for me that I won't lose heart. I, I pray for you that you won't lose heart. We're going to have a little prayer team in a few minutes. We'll be glad to pray for you that you won't lose heart. As long as you turn around and pray for us that we won't lose heart. Because that's why Jesus had to say, keep praying and don't lose heart because people lose heart. And what was exciting about being called into the ministry in the first few times that I can still remember the first few times that uh, I did, I, I remember once uh, there was a guy who was very theological, very knowledgeable, and he'd helped me grow a lot in the Lord, but he had been brought up in a Pentecostal tradition that didn't believe a Christian could have a demon, and he had a lot of demons. And I was trying to kind of explain this to him biblically for about a year. And finally one day I said, you know, I know how to get this through to him. I just began to command the demons that he had to manifest himself. And he started, and he started freaking out. And uh, before long, we were casting out demons. And that went on for like three weeks. He's the guy that some of you have heard the story. When we named the spirit of death, he actually fell over. And he was not breathing and there was no pulse. And when we cast the spirit of death out, he started to breathe again and sat back up and, and had a pulse again. But they, there was no pulse at all, and he wasn't breathing at all. And if, that, if you don't think that's powerful stuff, you're in the wrong universe. Well, I only got to uh, the review today. I didn't get to the uh, other side, which was uh, I'm going to give us 10 points about the Lord's Prayer model. So I'll just do another tease to say this. A lot, I don't have any problem with the, the many Christian traditions that recite the Lord's Prayer. The only benefit of that is if in memorizing it, you remember that it's principles for prayer. The Lord's Prayer is meant to give you an outline for your prayers. It's not necessarily something to be recited. It's something to teach us how to pray. And it was given, guess what? You know, here's something you need to, you know, we try to give you things that will help you interpret the Bible better. All right, I'm, this one's so good, I'm coming down here. I gotta get, do you know what? Everybody thinks that when Jesus is asked a question, that he's answering a different question because his answers often are kind of cryptic. So listen to this very carefully. When Jesus is asked a question, his answer always, every time, there's no exceptions, always answers the question. Always. So, you know, when Nicodemus comes to see Jesus and he says, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't perceive it. He's answering Nicodemus's question. When Nicodemus then says, well, how can that be? You can't go back into a, your mother's womb and, and be answered, you know, again, you know, uh, 
And he says, I tell you, unless you're born ek, out of water and out of the spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of God. You have to be born twice. The first time you develop in amniotic fluid, which is 98.5% water. And you're born out of water. When you're really reborn, it's not just because of an altar call. It's not because of a slick gospel track that reduces it to four points. You're reborn out of the spirit of God. You know, uh, one of the things, if you want to be involved in seeing someone come to Christ, listen to two things. Babies develop over nine months. They're not conceived and born on the same night. Right? So don't be too quick. And they have to be in the amniotic fluid for a long time. So if you want to see someone come to Christ... Get them in a place where the Spirit of God is present, active, and moving all the time. Because they'll be born into the kingdom out of the Spirit of God. And there's nothing I can do nor you can do to, to, to redeem your brother, as the Psalms tell us. There's nothing you can do to save anyone. But you can invite them to be on our turf, so to speak. And then you can do what, you're, what each of us needs to do in Christian community to make sure the Spirit of God dwells here powerfully. I don't want just, uh, you know what happens in, I, I grew up in a lot of Pentecostal churches and stuff. I, I should say grew up in the Lord. I wasn't a Christian until I was 17, but I went to a lot of Pentecostal churches. I know, studied a lot about that culture and so forth. And sometimes there's kind of this thing of when, when things are drying up and, there, and there's not so much of the presence of the Spirit that we just beat the drum lo- you know, louder and hit, hit the tambourine a little bit more and crank it up a little bit more. That's not what we're talking about. But there, there are things you and I can both do to cultivate the presence of the Holy Spirit more. And that's what I'm trying to talk about in this prayer season and series. And you know what? There's, if you have a problem with this, come up for prayer afterwards. Because so many people in our culture think that's someone else's job in the church. But you know what, Byron? You know what, Sam? David, whatever. You know, Michael, Jesse, Anvesh, Robbie, Abigail. You are responsible for how much power of the Spirit is here. How much is in the Gray's house? How much is in the Hager's house? How much is in the Kosler house? You're responsible for creating an atmosphere when someone walks into the Kosler house, they know there's a different spirit. 
They know it. I, I hear that all the time. People say, like, something's different about your house. Yeah, it's the vanilla candles. And <laughs> uh, it's the presence of God. And we can either cultivate... Has anyone ever had someone... Uh, had the, the contrasting experiences where there's someone who really makes you feel welcome versus someone who makes you feel like you're an intrusion, you're not welcome, right? And we do that with the Spirit of God, and that's what prayer is actually about, and we'll pick that up next week.